0: going to uh, uh, go through the Athanasian Creed before we start our sermon this morning. Of course, it's our practice that we usually go through the London Baptist Confession of Faith. If you've got a U-Butte uh, study Bible, I always recommend the Reformation Study Bible. The new editions have all of the creeds and the confessions in the back, so uh, that's just impressive. That's a plug. I'm not getting any money for that. Uh, but we are, we're going to do the Athanasian Creed, so, so we'll, we'll celebrate communion in just a little bit. Um, after the sermon, but we're going to uh, uh, just read over the Athanasian Creed. Now, this was, this was uh, named after, it wasn't actually written by, but it was named after Athanasius, who was a, uh, really the arch hero, uh, defender of the faith. Uh, a saying came out of the uh, the big uh, controversy and debate that happened, which was Athanasius contra mundum, which means Athanasius against the world, because there was at one point when the whole sort of Roman uh, European empire was uh, was Arian really, which they they were affirming? All of the bishops were affirming a heresy, and it seemed like he was just about the only one who was actually affirming a biblical doctrine of the Trinity and Christ's incarnation. So he was exiled multiple times until eventually the debate, the council went down uh, in 325, uh, where uh, where the the truth was was uh, uh, re. Um, published and was made very clear in what is known as the Athanasian Creed. Just a little bit of, it's fitting that we're doing this one in December because this is uh, uh, the council where we start learning about a guy who came to be known as Santa Claus. So just any kids in the room, uh, I don't know what what you've been told, I'm not going to break any bubbles this morning, but let me tell you at least, uh, the guy who was historically uh, known as Santa Claus, he was known as Saint Nick, and at this council, at this big theological debate, Saint Nick punched a heretic called Arius because he didn't believe that Jesus was truly God in the flesh, he believed that the Son was sort of a, a subdivision of God, and for that we praise God and thank Santa Claus for that great story. So tell that one around the Christmas tree instead of the fables, hey? Let me read for you the Athanasian Creed, and it will be uh, up behind us so that you can follow along in your own head. Whoever desires to be saved should, above all, hold to the universal faith. The the early church, let me just say, was big on on the the whole church believing the right truth, that if you found yourself outside of the orthodox, uh, 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 well-held historical position, you're in trouble. Okay, so they said this is what the universal or another version might have Catholic faith. Catholic just means universal. Everyone believes this. The universal Christian faith. Anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. And now this is the universal faith. That we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. Neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. Whatever quality the Father has, the Son has, and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable, the Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Holy Spirit is eternal. And yet they are not three eternal beings, but are one eternal being. So, so far he's been showing that, uh, they've been stating that the nature of God is one essence. This is the ontology. The what of God is one, the who of God is three. Yet there are not three eternal beings, but there is one eternal being. And so too, there are not three uncreated or immeasurable beings, but there, are, there is one uncreated and immeasurable being. Similarly, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, the Holy Spirit is almighty. Yet there are not three almighty beings, but one almighty being. Thus the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet there are not three gods. There is but one God. Thus the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, there is but one Lord. It moves then from the Trinity and and all of those languages that we just... It sounds a bit meticulous, why they go at so many angles. All of those things were debated in the day. They're making so clear the historical position. And then they move to the incarnation of Jesus. When that Trinity sent the Son to... uh, The Father sent the Son, the second member of the Trinity, to become flesh... Just as Christian truth compels us to confess each person individually as both God and Lord, so universal religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was not made nor created nor begotten from anyone. The Son was neither made nor created, but he was begotten by the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten, but he does proceed from the Father and the Son. Accordingly, there is one Father, not three Fathers, One son, not three sons. One Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And you might think, who even would teach that? I've heard it preached in an otherwise seemingly sound church that there is really nine members of the Holy Trinity, each member having three within them, right? Yes, humans have no end of their heresy. Nothing in this Trinity is before or after. Nothing is greater or smaller in their entirety. The three persons are co-eternal and co-equal with each other. So in everything as was said earlier, we must worship the Trinity in unity and their unity in Trinity. Anyone who desires to be saved should think this way about the Trinity. But halfway through, take a breather. It is also necessary for eternal salvation that one believes in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ faithfully. And this is the true faith, that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, "...is both God and human equally. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time, and he is human from the essence of his mother, born, born in time. Completely God, completely human. With a rational soul and human flesh, meaning he had, a, he had a human will, a human mind, he thought human thoughts, he was not just divine spirit in a, in a fleshly body puppeting it around." Yet he was equal to the Father as regards divinity, less than the Father as regards humanity. Although he is God and human, yet Christ is not two, but one. He is one, however, not by uh, by divinity being turned into flesh, but by God taking humanity to himself. We say that Jesus did not uh, become human by subtraction, as if he removed his divinity. He became human by addition. He added a human nature to his divine nature. He is one, certainly not by the blending of his essence, but by the unity of his person. For just as one human is both rational soul and flesh, right? We have spirit and flesh. So to one Christ is both God and human in the same logical categories. He suffered for our salvation. He descended to hell. He arose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He seated at the Father's right hand. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. And at his coming, all people will rise bodily and give an account of their own deeds. Those who have done good will enter eternal life. Those who have done evil will enter eternal fire. This is the universal faith. One cannot be saved without believing it firmly and faithfully. I hope that is how you think of the Trinity and how you think of our Lord Jesus incarnation at Christmas time. Now, can you please turn with me to Mark chapter 10? We say it every week so that uh, no visitor misses out on the reality and our practice here. Uh, we go through books of the Bible. We believe that is the most uh, 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 honest way and fair way and safe way to let the God-breathed Scripture continue to be breathed out in truth, if we leave it in all of its context and travel in the order that it has been inspired. And in the series of Mark that we've been doing, uh, we've been seeing that Jesus is being foreshadowed as the king who is bringing this this imminent, this very soon uh, arriving, this coming here right now in the person of Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is bringing the kingdom He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He has uh, been doing acts and sermons and deeds and miracles and challenging the authorities of the day to show that he is the authority. There is no pagan God that can compare with who Jesus is in flesh, more powerful than anything and everything. And there is no spiritual authority or scriptural ruler uh, or or religious uh, person in Jerusalem that can that can compete with jesus in his power and his authority as well as his knowledge of the scriptures so the king has come and yet what we've been learning recently as he foretells his death on the cross and his resurrection is that this king is coming in such a way and this kingdom is coming in such a way that is entirely unexpected there are elements of it that are entirely unpalatable for the natural man, including God's own people, the Jews. This kingdom is coming in such a way as is unexpected to the normal, human, even the the modern-day Jew of Jesus' time. So uh, what we're going to see today is Jesus is is coming, especially we're going to look at the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming explicitly as king, and yet that is misunderstood. Can you read, uh, uh, sorry, just find in your Bible and I will read. We're going to go from chapter 10, verse 46, and we're going to go through to chapter 11, verse 11. Two different accounts, uh, sorry, two accounts of of stories that are very connected. Verse 46 reads, And they came to Jericho. And as they were leaving Jericho with his disciples and a uh, a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, Was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up. He is calling you and throwing off his cloak. He sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me, cu- let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village ahead of you. Go into the village and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt, all right, a little donkey on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it to me. And if anyone says to you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them exactly as Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, He went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, inspired, precious word among us this morning. (coughs) We've been seeing last week, hadn't we, and we even uh, recapped what the other gospel writers had said of Jesus, that, that he is now on his road to Jerusalem. Very literally, he's walking with crowds He's walking with his disciples. They're going to the city of Jerusalem, which Jesus had already said, and the disciples all knew, was extremely dangerous for Jesus. He was a wanted man, and anybody that that related to him or was uh, 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 one of his disciples was not allowed into the worship places. They, they, They had a target on their back if you were a friend of Jesus, and yet he has his face set like flint, we're told, Set like stone, he was not changing. He was not turning. Nothing would delay him. No religious authority, no human threats, no Roman crucifixion. Nothing would stop him from going to do what God had sent him to do. He was on his road to Jerusalem mentally and physically. And what he was going to do, what he's going to go into Jerusalem and do is just the very same thing, that every prophet in the Old Testament had done. This was the commission of the Old Testament prophets that you might have missed if you sort of read them quickly or you haven't, haven't dug into them all that much, is that the prophets are sent like legal contractual lawyers to go into Jerusalem or whatever city they were sent to, read and proclaim the obligations of the people to their God, all right, pick up old scriptures and say, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to keep the Sabbath. You're supposed to make the sacrifices. You're not supposed to divorce your wives. You're not supposed to kill your children in the fire. They would read out the obligations and then call condemnation. They would say, because of your sin, therefore you will receive condemnation. Because of your breaking covenant, you will be punished. There is judgment on the lips of the prophets. And yet at the same time, and you'll notice this in your mind if you've reflected on the prophets, what they also do is amidst judgment shine the shining light of salvation. They'll say there is judgment coming on the evildoers, there is condemnation for the covenant breakers, and yet those who fear the Lord will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm putting in Zion a stone that the builders will reject, and and yet it will be the foundation stone of the kingdom, right? There's all of this two-layered proclamation going on by the prophets all the time. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's aiming for Jerusalem. He's going to start in the week that is to come leading up to his death, and in fact, causing his death. He's going to start picking fights making arguments and giving very public condemnation of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And yet he will also be holding out salvation to all those who would repent. In fact, the preaching of condemnation is what will get him killed, and it's the him getting killed that will bring about salvation. God is the master storyteller. He he reveals his word in amazing ways. Uh, one, One very simple theme, and in fact, we sang, I picked this, Because we sing it in the the Christmas carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Here's here's an Old Testament prophetic uh, 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 scripture that reflects what we were just talking about. Judgment and salvation. Malachi chapter 4 verse 1 and 2 says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and all of the evildoers will be stubble. Okay, they're going to turn into ash. That day is coming, and it shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. There's no leftover sticks. When God's fiery judgment comes, it will leave no brick upon another. Verse 2, but for those who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall you see that double-pronged theme of the prophets. Jesus is coming to do the very same thing. Nothing is stopping him. Nothing is delaying him. He has his mind set towards Jerusalem, but there is one thing that slows him down, and that is the cry for mercy from a man like Bartimaeus. None of the warnings of the disciples, you know, they're going to kill us, None of the threats of the the religious leaders could slow Jesus down. But when he, on his march, with a band of men around him, is going towards the royal city, when he hears a poor, begging, sick man cry out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me, that stops him in his tracks. That he's willing to listen to. That he turns around and he asks, wherever that man is, Bring him to me while the other people are telling him to shush. Don't bother the rabbi. He's he's on a mission. He's he's not listening to anybody at the moment. He listens to the call for mercy. I love this. I love this especially because the way Mark tells the story, we're in Jericho. Now, now I want to set out a little bit of the geography so that we can sort of see it in our mind. Jerusalem is up in the mountains, right? That's why they always go up to Jerusalem. It's in the mountains. The temple was this golden laid building on one of the peaks that was just shining gold in the sun. You could see it from miles away. It was called the glory of God on earth. That's what they called that temple. But around that mountain, there was other hills. There was other large mountains and one of them was the Mount of Olives. So if you were in Jerusalem and you were to just walk out of the temple one Sabbath morning, you'd gone, you'd done your sacrifices and and you walk out the front doors, you're gonna be facing east And what you'll see in front of you is, of course, the rising sun, if it's early. You'll see uh, a couple of mountains down to the south, and you'll see Mount Olives, which is one of the higher ones, up to your left, right, just a little bit northwest of Jerusalem. And behind Mount Olives, behind on the downside, is Bethany and Bethphage, two little towns, and a little bit further is Jericho. It's not the same Jericho that Joshua blew down with trumpets, but it is in a similar uh, sort of area, and it is at least, um, it's the town. In fact, it's a bit of history for you. They think that this is the oldest humanly inhabited city on earth. That's what historians say. And the reason Jericho was so habitable in this very arid desert most times of the year was because travelers, in fact, travelers often wrote as they're going through the Middle East and they would say that they see a mirage. They thought they were seeing a mirage because they're so thirsty, they're so I dehydrated because what you see when you're coming up to Jericho is wasteland and then palm trees and running springs of water. But it was truly an oasis of life in the desert. In fact it was so beautiful like this town it had been it had been gentrified it's somewhat of like uh, maybe the Hamptons in New York or or maybe we can pick Byron Bay like it was where where the, the they'd really beautified it and all of the celebrities had holiday homes there the the royalty in Jerusalem had winter palaces in Jericho because it was so lovely so beautiful so gorgeous in fact uh, one of the, the the romans in an earlier generation mark anthony he had dedicated it to his love who was a queen in africa beautiful story beautiful city oasis in the desert now i think that that is intentionally put there by mark we're told where this is happening because the story of bartimaeus and his calling for mercy his fearing the lord and his salvation and healing is like an oasis of spiritual life in the desert. It's this oasis of blessing in the middle of Jesus' ministry period, which is all cursing. It's this oasis of faith where there is rejection everywhere else. There's this oasis of blessing and salvation where the judge Jesus is coming and bringing judgment to the nation. I love that Jesus does this in Jericho. I love that Mark wrote it down like this, and I love what he calls out towards Jesus. I love what Bartimaeus says. He says, have mercy on me. If we can think back to Malachi from just before, those who fear his name, the sun shall rise with judgment in, sorry, with healing in its wings, opposite. The son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Here is one sitting on the roadside while the crowds are going past, a great time to beg, and he cries out to Jesus for mercy. And the son of righteousness comes to him and heals him, and that man starts running around worshipping Jesus with the crowds, Luke's gospel tells us. What a beautiful picture of salvation in the midst of a very dark week for the disciples. Bartimaeus, his name literally just means son of Timaeus. That's what bar in the Hebrew means. Son of Timaeus. There was, in the other Gospels, there's another guy with him who gets healed. And I think, as far as I can see, this is the only person in the Gospels who gets a healing that is named And church history tells us that this Bartimaeus became a well-known Christian in the early church. So Mark's putting this in because likely the the, the people who receive his gospel know Bartimaeus. They know Uncle Bart, right? He's a deacon at the church. He's a great evangelist. Everyone knows Uncle Bart. And he's in the story. And they're, they're seeing the conversion story of Bartimaeus. He once was blind, but now he can see. And what Bartimaeus cries out is, as we've looked over already, he cries out, Son of David. Now, now look at what he was told. Look at verse uh, 47. Obviously, he's asking what's going on. The other gospels tell us that. He he hears the crowd. He's blind. He's begging. This is a great moment to put on your best show as a beggar. Get the best of all these religious people coming to the Passover ceremony. Two million people would be in Jerusalem at this time of year. It's just, this is prime pickings. He's a good... uh, a good beggar. He'll get get great money here. So here he is. He's listening. The crowds are going past and he asks, what is this? What is going on? Who's walking past? And somebody tells him it's Jesus of Nazareth. They don't tell him it's Jesus, the son of David, the coming king. All he hears is it's Jesus." From Nazareth. It's uh it's that that guy who's going around and he's teaching from old North Town Nazareth, right? He's the Nazarene, not a lot going on. You know, he stirred up all the crowds. It's just that guy from Hicksville, he's walking through. But what all of those people could read in their scrolls with their perfectly seeing eyeballs, they had entirely missed, and the blind man got it. He had a spirit-given faith to understand who this Jesus was was there's a theme that goes throughout the gospels especially john where jesus tells the the religious leaders those who claim to have the most spiritual sight available he tells them they're blind and the people they consider blind the gentiles the 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 cursed the the sick people the the hoi polloi all of those people who can't read as well as you guys they have sight because true spiritual sight is tested by whether or not you believe in Jesus. They didn't, the others did. So here we have, again, coming up in Mark, there's a literal blind man who can see better than the scribes and the teachers who have their heads buried in scrolls every single day. What a judgment. He hears that it's Jesus of Nazareth, but he knows that that's the son of David. What he saw coming was the Messiah without having a scroll to refer to. That phrase, son of David, is to say that it's the the son of the great king David who was promised to come and rule us, right? It's the coming king, the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ in the Greek. The anointed one is what it means. And all he could do was ask for mercy. All that he could do, he couldn't run up and find him because he's blind. He couldn't uh, offer any money. He couldn't uh, uh, convince anybody to take him to him. They were telling him to shush but he could do one thing, and that was cry out for mercy. it says that when he was brought to Jesus, Jesus says, your faith, this faith that believes I am a teacher, because you call me rabbi, but this faith that believes I'm the Messiah, because you called me son of David, and this faith which believes that I can heal you, because that's what you asked for, that faith which believes that I am the coming Messiah, it has healed you. But the word there, sozo, in the Greek, is not just healing. It could just as well be translated it has made you whole, or in other times that word is used, it has saved you. I think Jesus is declaring to us this morning that Bartimaeus was saved by that faith which saw Jesus, though he had no working eyes. And as a, as a symbol of what he just done spiritually, Jesus heals the man's eyes and he is made well. I love this. In the desert of judgment, here is a, an oasis of mercy, salvation, and faith. Jesus shows to us this morning that this, this Bartimaeus who becomes a Christian, what Mark writes down, should be a, a tide of good message to you. It should be tidings of joy. It should be giving hope to some of you this morning who are still outside of Christ. Because you can, if, if you have had the Holy Spirit working on your heart for some time, maybe even just this morning, maybe the last week only, maybe you heard the gospel recently, or maybe it's been a long time coming. The Holy Spirit has been telling you and pressing into your heart that you have nothing to offer God. That if he was today to mark your your sins, count all of your iniquities, and pour out judgment, you would be hopeless. To you, Bartimaeus stands as a great joyful example. If you have nothing else to offer, nothing else to bring, nothing else you can do except cry out to Jesus for mercy, then there is good news for you. That is all that He requires. He does not need your good deeds. He doesn't want your money. He doesn't want you to impress Him in any way. It's impossible. But cry out for mercy in your heart. Reach out to Jesus and pray that He, the King, would give mercy to you and you'll be saved In a moment, that faith will make you well. So this is what we see happen on the way to Jerusalem in Jericho. And what a contrast this is, as we said, to the rest of the week. This is an example of what Jesus would do to the whole of Israel. If you just call on me for mercy... If you just recognize your unworthiness and your sin and your uncleanliness, Israel, I will heal you. If you fear the Lord, Malachi said, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. If you are evil and arrogant, the sun will rise to set you ablaze like a furnace. What will you have, Israel? What will you have, Jerusalem? It's your choice. And so we see the next unexpected thing where we see the the unexpected part is that Jesus would stop and if this great king would do anything, surely it's stopping to add to his pomp or something, but he just stops to heal a a, a, a man who is suffering. That's unexpected. What next is unexpected is is the appearance of the kingdom. And I'm not going to go through all of the, the details of the story, basically from verse one to six or so in chapter 11. It's pretty simple. He sends his guys, they get the donkey, they bring it back to him and whatnot. But what we need to see is is the arrival campaign of the king. I don't think many of you were here last September or so when we started the Gospel of Mark, but the first sermon that we preached uh, collectively, we all preached it together, uh, we were saying that this is the immediate explosive arrival of the king. Mark didn't give background story, he didn't give prophecies, he, he starts with this is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as it was told by Isaiah. And then the whole of the book just starts. It's right out of the gate, full paced. Jesus is preaching, teaching, casting out demons. The king has come. It's eruptuous. And now, right, he's gone through the town. He's collected his merry men. He's got his army together of the 12 disciples. And now he's lined up Jerusalem like David did. And he's going to march into that royal city for conquest, to receive the throne that was promised him. He's going to take the throne back, which is rightfully his. And yet, it's not going to look like how it sounds. So look at what happens. There's, there's a few things that, that the crowd absolutely gets right, and there's some things that they absolutely miss and get wrong. Look at verse 9. <clears throat> verse 9 tells us that... Uh, uh, Those who went before and those who followed were shouting. So what we see is basically two crowds. Uh, 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 There was the one that had sort of followed him up from Jericho where he had healed Bartimaeus and where he he had actually also met um, uh, Zacchaeus up in the tree. That's the same day where that happens. Uh, Jesus is coming with his own crowd, but when word gets to Jerusalem that he's coming, another crowd comes down the hill up Mount Olives to meet with him because... Not in this gospel, but definitely in the same week, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. Now, you need this has to weigh into our thinking of the scene because the city is abuzz with the reality that some guy is now alive who was dead for four days and it was Jesus. That's it for them. That is the last sign they need that this guy is the Messiah and at the same time, the religious leaders are infuriated they are enraged they are burning to boiling and they are planning to murder lazarus again get him back in the grave that'll kill the story and kill jesus that's how angry they are at the moment how how infuriated they are and yet the crowds right up to two million people in the city at this time they are excited so a huge crowd comes down another crowd is coming with jesus and they start uh, hacking off at Jericho and, and at Bethany, what they have is the palm fields the, because it's such a beautiful oasis of a, of a town. So they start hacking those, those branches off and they put their nice expensive coats, right? not, not exactly tux weather this morning, bar Keith, of course, but, but everybody else is uh, sort of short sleeves and whatnot this morning. But in, but in this time at winter in Jericho, they are throwing down their nice suede coats, their nice Gucci Jackets, they don't care about them. They're throwing them on the ground. These cloaks were like the, they were the prized uh, uh, fashion item of the, of the Jews of the day. They throw it on the ground as if to make a red carpet for the, to, for the two or three kilometers down the hill and up the hill into Jerusalem. They honor Jesus and he sits on this cult which is, uh, which is uh, 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 it's painted for us to show us royal themes. kings, rode animals that had never been ridden before. The king's animal was dedicated to him and so we see that he gets a donkey that has never been ridden before. It's a royal donkey. It's going to carry him into town. And you start seeing what they, what they begin shouting and what they start singing is, you'll, you'll see this in uh, verse uh, 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of our Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What they recognized was that this riding on this donkey, this man is the king that has been promised to rebuild and restore and then rule over the glory of the kingdom of David. That which was lost through sin, that which was taken away through exile, the Messiah, the son of David, is going to come, restore, rebuild, rule over, and bring the glories of the nations into Jerusalem. That's what they believe. That's what they're seeing. That's what they're, they're saying. They're actually quoting Psalm 118, which is what we, we read this morning for our call to worship. Verse 25 and 26 says exactly what they're praying. Save us, we pray. That, that is what the word Hosanna means. Save us, O Lord. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They got it. They were getting right that this is the coming king. They also say uh, uh, Hosanna in the highest. This is, this is praise to God as well as a prayer to God. Give us the victory, give us the kingdom, and praise you for doing so. Save us and praise you, God. They they had seen here, as they say, the coming kingdom of our father David. They were were looking back to the Davidic covenant. The promise that God had made to David, that he would restore and rebuild and give to them a king that would literally never die. He would never sin his way out of the out of the throne. And the nation would never be defeated and never destroyed again. That, that's a coming kingdom. That's a coming king. They believed it to be Jesus. They were reflecting on Second Samuel chapter 7, where we see this promise between God and David. He says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established Forever. There was a distant coming sun to rule and restore the kingdom to all of its glory. So we could, we could sort of take a, the Joy to the World um, Christmas carol this morning. We could, we could sort of turn it a little bit around and make it, make it the, the song that the Israelites would have been singing. Like they, they sung these songs like we sing at Christmas. They, they would have sung, Joy to Israel, the Lord is come. Let Jerusalem receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature Sing, right? That's, that's, that's the, the big Christmas parade. That's the atmosphere you have to imagine on this beautiful day in the mountains of Jerusalem. Jesus is riding that donkey to the praises of every. What I love is, Mark doesn't say it, but Matthew and Luke do. Matthew says that, uh, um, uh, do I get it the right way around? Matthew says that, yeah, the, the scribes and the Pharisees tell Jesus, they, they sort of dob on all the little kids to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, the kids are singing to you like you're the Messiah. The kids are singing to you like you're divine. Aren't you going to stop them? And then uh, Luke's gospel tells us that the disciples are singing that. And they dob on the disciples and say, aren't you going to stop your disciples from singing this blasphemous song? And I love what Jesus does. The response should have been pretty, uh, pretty predictable. Imagine, if you will, rugby grand final. Uh, uh, Wallabies, Smash the All Blacks, right? And, and, and you have a security member who's called. Can you go down, please? Uh, the coach of the, the All Blacks tells the security member, can you please go over to that rowdy bunch of, of uh, yellow-painted Wallaby fans and can you tell them that with all of their chanting and their cheering, they're hurting the feelings of my front row? Okay, Can you please tell them that these huge Maori fellas are in tears, uh, over the, the, the taunts and the cheers of your, um, of your, your fans. And, and so the, the security member goes over and sort of hushes the crowd and says to the guy who, you know, bucket on his hat and whatever, with the, a snake with the cups that they toss up, and he tells them, hey, mate, i just got to ask, um, you're not too rowdy for, the, for the, uh, uh, the, the, the stadium, but the request has been put in by the uh, opposing captain, may you please settle down, you're hurting their feelings. What would happen? you know exactly what would happen. And it is exactly what Jesus does. He would just turn around to the guys and go, do you hear that, fellas? We're hurting their feelings. What do you say we do? And they would sing all the louder. And that's what Jesus does. He just whoops up the crowd. He gets told, hey, this is a bit bit out of hand. They're all praising you a lot. And he, he sort of turns around and goes, you hear that, guys? These guys don't like you praising the Messiah. What do you think we should do? And he stirs them up all the more. And they keep yelling so that the crowd sort of just uh, over floods and overwhelms those scribes and the critics. They can't even keep up with the volume of the crowd who is praising their rightful king. I love that scene. They got a lot right that day, and Jesus affirmed part of it. However, there is much that they misunderstood. If they had been paying attention to the scene... If they had been reading their Old Testament scrolls, they would have recognized what they were watching was a fulfillment of Zechariah 9 verse 9, which was not a picture of extreme glory and immediate victory, but divine humility bringing the conquest. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says... Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. They got all of that. But they didn't get the next line. He is humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They did not like that word, humble. As if their Messiah would be coming and doing anything other than total Roman conquest and destruction. They'd had enough of being in the dirt. They'd had enough of this humble language. They also misunderstood what the real aim and mission of the Messiah was. Because in Zechariah 13, verse 1, it says, On the day, sorry, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. That fountain would pour forth from the blood of Jesus. But what it had as its first assumption is that this whole city is filthy, impure, and unclean. It is a city of sin. Therefore, Jesus will come and pour forth his blood to cleanse. But what would those Jews not have accepted, did not accept, and therefore killed Jesus for suggesting is that they were unclean and needing cleansing. They would not receive that. That their king would be humble and die, number one, they would not receive. But even more offensive is that they were unclean, that they needed cleansing. It's the Romans who are unclean. They are the ones who needed judging. They were too blind, unlike Bartimaeus. They were too blind to see that they were being judged. They were not the judges. They were being condemned. They were not the righteous. They thought that Jesus would come to conquer the Romans because there's nothing left to fix with us Jews. We're about as right with God as anyone could ever be. I mean, what's he got to do? Maybe he has half a day in Jerusalem, which is what he does at the end of today's story. He goes in, has a look around. He's gearing up for what he's going to do the next day when he turns the tables over in the temple just by the way. But, but to them, they think, yeah, he comes in, looks around. All is good in Jerusalem. Back to Bethany, he goes. What could he possibly have to fix up in Jerusalem, the holy city of David with the house of God, the temple? They had repenting to do, not merely affirmation to receive from God. And therefore, Luke 19 tells us that as Jesus comes up over the Mount of Olives and he looks down onto the valley, opening up into Jerusalem with that shining temple, he is brought to uncontrollable tears. He says, this city, which is filled to the brim with the blood of the prophet, this city which keeps on killing the righteous, This city is blind to understand the day of its visitation. It will not receive the Messiah because it's blind to what is really going on. Therefore, it will be destroyed. It will be flattened. It will be burned. The sun of righteousness will rise with burning in its wings for Jerusalem. Jesus weeps and wails over this lost city of Jerusalem because of their own sin and the judgment that God will then bring. And this is a parable for, for every single person who lives today. Everyone wants to believe that God is on their side bringing salvation and eternal life and affirmation. Right? Everybody wants to believe that if God just sort of came down, if he's a good God, of course, if he really is as good as he says and he's as loving as he is and kind and righteous as he says I can't wait for him to make everything right in the world. I want his salvation to come. I want all these prayers to be answered. I want him to start dealing with the world because then I will get my two cents worth. Then I will, then I will get repaid. I want God to come because he's my buddy. Him and I are all good and he's going to take down everybody else. What I've got to receive from the Lord is affirmation, is understanding, is mercy, peace and love and everybody else is going to deal and get dealt with their fair share. This is the human natural mind. Sin is everybody else's problem. Very few of us are are ready to accept and realize, especially with all the joy around Christmas, that the reason Jesus had to come is because you are the problem. You are the enemy of God. If God comes to bring judgment to the unworthy, to the evil, to the unrighteous, to the unclean, to the arrogant and the evil doing, you will be the one destroyed. You deserve eternal punishment. You are not a friend of God by nature. And this was the thought, process, the understanding of the Jews. Jesus will come, the Messiah will come, and what could possibly happen other than affirmation and salvation? They had misunderstood. The covenant. The covenant had been if you obey and then if you receive the Messiah. So if you're righteous and then when the Messiah comes, you believe all of his teaching and you accept whatever he tells you to do. If you do that, you'll receive the blessing. And they failed at every point. They broke every law. They killed every prophet. And then they killed Jesus, the son of God, when he came. But this is us. This is the human problem. Are you this morning, as you're you're sitting here and you hear this story, are you the same? Are you in the same boat as these Jews who are assuming that God's blessed kingdom will be all good for you because you and he are good friends? You have really nothing between you and God that would mean that you would be condemned. If God is good, surely you'll be first in line to heaven. Friends, if God is good, if he has any standards at all, You and I would be sent to hell if we meet him on judgment day without the blood of Jesus Christ, the fountain of cleansing blood from Jerusalem, the the rising sun who has spiritually healed us. If he has not cleansed us, made us forgiven by his death in our place, the perfect life that he lived, his triumphant resurrection and his glorious ascension to the right hand of God, if he has not done that, and if you have not, believed that and grasped that and leaned on that by faith, then you are an enemy of God who will be destroyed in the judgment day of Christ. But how joyful it is, how good and glorious it is to be able to reflect on the fact that in Jesus Christ there is healing. If you fear the Lord and trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness will bring healing in His his wings. If you repent of your sin, Jesus will forgive you. But if you are arrogant and if you are an evildoer, you will be turned to rubble as God punishes you. And so we remind ourselves that this, as Christmas is nearing, joy to the world. This is the, the proclamation of Christmas, is joy to the world because peace is being proclaimed to earth from heaven. The proclamation is that we have been visited by the one who reigns, That he who was offended, who was our enemy, has come down to set up a kingdom with eternal and spiritual life. Because he died for our sins. Because he lived in our place. He dealt with our sins, which is the ultimate problem. Not the lack of peace in the world. Not the lack of finances that you have. Not the struggles we go through. But our sin. He dealt with it all on the cross. And therefore, you can repent of sin, receive the king, and be made a child of God. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice at what is given to us to remember at Christmas, that the the God who made us has come into his creation, the God who we have sinned against infinitely and every moment of our lives, has come to take upon himself our sin, take upon himself the punishment we deserve. That the eternal Son, a true God, has become a true man so that he could be our king, be our representative, and be our example. Father God, I pray that with all of the joy of Christmas, we would remember that the peace that is proclaimed, the joy that comes to the world, the praise that is sung is that you have re- re- uh, saved us from our sin. The good news has buried in it so much bad news that those who do not repent will perish, that we are condemned because of our sin. But Lord, let us remember this two-pronged salvation. We are condemned by our sin. We are justified, freed, saved, and healed by the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the King of the world, your own Son. I pray, Lord, that you would give salvation, that you would fill the believing hearts with rejoicing, Or that you would continue to bless us as we fear you and we believe in the name of your only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody said...